Well, if you will, take your Bibles, turn once more to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15 will be our text today. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 specifically as we continue really what has been a theme now for several weeks all the way back to the beginning of chapter 14. Romans chapter 15, beginning there in verse 1. These are the words of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read through verse 7. The Word of God says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for truth. Father, as we consider this word today, would you open our hearts and minds and plant it deep within us that we might look more like Christ as we seek to live faithfully to the calling that we've been given in him. We pray this in his name. Amen. One of the things that we need to realize as we think about our calling as Christians, and this is no surprise to you, you've heard this stated here many times before, is that as believers we are called to be a communal people. Christians are called and created for community. Go back to the very beginning of Scripture, right after the creation of Adam and Adam in the garden, we know that right after he created man, he said that it was not good for the man to be alone. So he created woman. And both bearing the image of God lived in a divinely ordered relationship that pointed to the glory of God. But soon after that, we know that something drastic took place, didn't it? There in the Garden of Eden, this perfect environment, this perfect relationship, this perfect community that existed was immediately hindered and fractured because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve against their creator. When they chose to disregard God's command to not eat of the forbidden tree, they chose to go against their creator, they chose their own way, and at that point in history and ever since that point, we know that sin has been a curse in this world. That community was fractured Not just between Adam and Eve, but it's impacted every community since then. We see the effects of that, don't we? Whether it's in our own relationships today, whether it's in our schools or our work environments, our families, extended families, the struggle that often takes place. We can just look at our own nation, a great nation that it is. It's a fractured nation. Division and tribalism and anger are on the front page of the news regularly. Nowhere is that more evident than in Washington, D.C. And what goes on there often 
trickles down into the cities and communities and families and even the church. We know that it, the fracture didn't take place in D.C. It was, that's a fruit of what took place in the garden. We know that this idea of community being impacted and fractured is the reality that we experience because of life in a fallen world. I think it's important to think about that as a backdrop to what we're considering today. Because only in the gospel of Jesus Christ can what is fractured be appropriately mended. And that's exactly what Paul is encouraging here to the Roman believers as he wrote this letter to them. Paul is writing to a community of Christians. And this community is a very diverse community that is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Different ethnicities, different customs, different convictions, different experiences. And he's writing to encourage these believers with all the the background and all the differences that impact their daily lives that they seek to be unified in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't think I have to tell you this as source of the first time of information for you, but there are many, many threats, endless threats, we could say, to Christian unity today. And Paul's concern, as so should our concern be, is that we do not allow differences, specifically differences over tertiary or what we could say non-essential matters, non-essential to the gospel, that we do not allow differences over non-essential matters to divide us. Friends, we know that differences of opinion, differences even of conviction over secondary and tertiary and what we could say non-essential matters often divide believers. And Paul's concern here in Romans 14 and 15 is that our differences not be a wedge between our fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. So if we were to come to our passage today and say, well, what is the main point that Paul is telling us here? He would, we could simply summarize it as, as this. Christians are called to live selflessly for the good of others. Christians are called to live selflessly for the good of others and for the glory of God. Now, as we think about that, I want us to see from Romans chapter 15, and specifically these first six verses of chapter 15, five encouragements that Paul gives us here to pursue unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. So remember the context. If you are here for the first time today, let me kind of give you a background here. Paul has been, been addressing potential hindrances to fellowship and unity within the church at Rome. He's identified those who are weak in the faith versus those who are strong in the faith, and he's calling the strong in faith in particular to bear with those who are weak in faith, that there would not be a division among them, even though they may see things differently, that they would yet be unified in Christ. So he gives us five encouragements here in Romans 15, the first six verses, as to why we should pursue this kind of fellowship and unity. Let's walk through them together. Number one, encouragement number one. 
as to why we should pursue Christian unity is that it builds others up. Christian unity builds others up. You see that in verse 2 specifically. Notice verse 1. He kind of gives the, the, the overarching command. We who are strong, notice Paul aligns himself here, by the way, as those who would be among the strong in faith. Not one, as, not one that has a very sensitive conscience. Not one that, that has been given over. Notice, as a Jew, he's now aligning himself as one who is strong. We notice a couple of weeks ago, there in the early part of chapter 14, that this division of the weak and the strong was likely between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And that it was probably, likely, that the Jewish believers tended towards being the weak in faith, meaning that they were more bogged down with some of the Old Testament rituals and some of the Old Testament um, um, days of observance and, and particular laws that they had grown up with in Judaism, and now they were still bringing that over to bear in their own Christian walk. They had a very sensitive and delicate conscience, whereas the Gentile believers didn't have that background. They didn't have all of those laws. They didn't have the food restrictions, even though Jesus had clearly made it uh, apparent that there was no longer foods that were unclean. And so there was this difference between the strong and the weak. Paul aligns himself as those who are among the strong. We who are strong, he says, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So clearly, chapter 15, verse 1, Paul acknowledges that one, he's among the strong, and two, the weak position is the wrong position. It's the one that's needing correction. He says it there. He calls it the failings of the weak. So Paul acknowledges that it's the strong who have the right perspective but yet the obligation and the responsibility weighs heavier on the strong that they would bear with the failings of the weak. Again, the strong were those who were not bound by these restrictions, whether in Old Testament law or elsewhere. They had informed consciences that allowed them freedom regarding food and religious observances, etc. While the weak thought that true faithfulness, if you're going to be a true Christian, then that still meant observing strict food laws and keeping certain holy days, the Jewish calendar. Now, as we think through these issues, it's, it's difficult to make an exact correlation from what they were talking about then to examples today. Um, we don't necessarily, unless it's issues of diet, we don't, we don't necessarily, although it does happen, there's not usually a raging debate over diet in the church as far as whether or not you can be a faithful Christian and eat this. And you may not be wise if you eat this or whatever, uh, but you can't say that only faithful Christians eat steak or whatever. Fill in the blank. Can't say that. None of us would, I don't think. So sometimes I think that what we're finding here is this, this, this dialogue and this, this tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, between the strong and the weak, uh, we may not find an exact relationship of what we wrestle with today, but I think even if we can't find an exact correlation, there, there can be, but even if we struggle finding it, the principle here is still helpful. Paul, as one of the strong, has been exhorting the strong that they have this responsibility to bear with the failings of the weak, their weak consciences. Now remember, this was over issues that were not essential to the gospel. We're not talking about the message of how a person is saved. We're talking about things that Christians may disagree on and still be Christian. This is what he's addressing. 
important issues, but not gospel-level issues. Now, to be fair, one of the struggles, I think, of the week is that they tended to raise certain things to gospel-level issues when they didn't need to be. And what Paul is saying is that, listen, strong Christians, you need to bear with the failings of the week. You need to be patient with these brothers and sisters. Several important things to, to just note here. Paul is not, what he's not saying, he's not calling us, or not calling us, or whoever the strong are in faith, to give in to the view of the weak, just to make things easy. He's not saying, okay, strong Christians, just do what the weak say, just to make things easy. You know, they don't believe this, okay, just go along with them, just kind of to make them happy. That's not what this text is saying. Nor is it a call to join the weak in practice. They say that this is the right way to live. You're just going to you're just have to deal with it and live like they say just to keep the peace in the church. That's not what he's saying. It's a call to forbear. This language to bear with. It's not put up with. It's a call to endure patiently with such brothers and sisters. It's a beautiful image in a sense because it's a posture that requires humility. It's a posture that often requires much time and effort and certainly patience. It means that for those who are strong in their faith, you may be in this for the long haul. You see, the attitude of the strong toward the weak can go bad quickly. And this is, I think, Paul's concern is that the strong would not arrogantly force their way on the weak to say, listen, all foods are clean, all days are alike. Get with the system, weak Christians. That's, that's what Paul is trying to, to, to deal with here. He's, he's trying to exhort the strong in faith to say, listen, don't, don't force your freedoms on the weak brother and sister. See, the attitude of the strong toward the weak can manifest itself sinfully in several different ways. Think about these for a minute. The strong could be tempted to simply ignore the weak. They just kind of roll their eyes. I can't believe that they would believe that. I'm just, I don't even want to talk to them. You know, I don't even have the patience to deal with that kind of nonsense, that kind of attitude. Paul is addressing here. Or it's, it's the, the temptation to simply tolerate the weak brother or sister. And, and there, along with that, is this low-level frustration that's just constantly there toward a brother and sister in Christ. There's also the temptation to gossip about the weaker Christian. What I mean by that is to basically tell others how dumb they are. Or if not gossip about them, to correct them directly. Now I'm not saying you shouldn't, there shouldn't be a place for correction. But what I'm saying is that your first, your first response as a stronger Christian is to immediately tell them how, that, how dumb they are. Well, you can't possibly believe that. That's foolish. Paul's addressing all of these tendencies that the strong may have to either ignore or to be frustrated with or to simply gossip about them and tell others how foolish they are or to just simply tell them face to face, Get with it. He's addressing that kind of attitude. Vern, I just, just encourage you to think about that. Consider, consider your own heart toward other Christians who you disagree with, 
not gospel matters, but you have disagreements over issues of life and practice, other Christians believing the same gospel as you, maybe in the same church, you have disagreements with over certain things. Is your tendency to ignore them? Just kind of roll your eyes and just write them off? Do you have this tendency to, you'll tolerate them, but you're just constantly frustrated about it? Or after home group, you wait till they leave and you're like, can you believe they said that? Or maybe you just tell them straight up, you know, you're not exhibiting patience and you're just like, you're wrong. <laughs> do we find that a temptation sometimes? I think, I think we do as, as Christians. So none of this is what Paul has in mind as he's instructing the strong here to do these things. He's, he's trying to correct that. Especially when he calls them to bear with the failings of the weak. Again, notice what he says in verses 1. He says, we, have a, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This is important. He says, we who are strong are called, we have an obligation, a responsibility to bear with, not just put up with, but to patiently endure, to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, but rather to please him or her. And you say, no, wait a minute. Sounds like Paul is calling the strong to be a bunch of people pleasers. What it seems to sound like, right? Well, that each of us please his neighbor for his good. Verse 1, not to please ourselves. So you're saying that even though I may have what could be a right interpretation or a right practice, you're saying that I've got to somehow deny my own convictions and be someone who pleases the one who I think is wrong? That it's just about making everybody happy? No, that's not what he's saying. That's impossible, by the way. He's not comparing pleasing people versus pleasing God. We know that our ultimate goal and our ultimate aim in life is to please God. What, what God thinks is what matters most, right? We know that. We, 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 we know that. We know that we're not going to stand before others and give account to, to others at the end of time. We're, we're going to give an account to God. And so what God thinks is what matters most. And so our lives ought to be lived out in such a way where we're pleasing Him. And that, that's what we're after, the glory of God. That's not what Paul's necessarily talking about. He's not saying you need to be pleasing people versus pleasing God. But rather he's comparing pleasing people versus pleasing ourselves. Look again at verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor... And notice he defines what that looks like or what he's talking about. It's not just please his neighbor and go along with what they say. But he says, let us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's an important qualifier. Paul is not saying that the strong should cease practicing his or her freedoms completely. Nor is it a call for the strong to please the weak so that their self-interest, the weak's self-interest can be preserved. 
He's simply calling the strong to patiently love the weak, not so that the weak can feel good about themselves, but so that they can be built up in Christ. One of the things that we need to keep in mind is what we're being called to here in 15 and in chapter 14. Jeremy pointed this out last week as he talked about the importance of the conscience. Is that, friends, we're called to live in a way that would never lead another person to sin against his or her conscience. It does not mean that we should cease doing something just because someone might think it's wrong. A lot of people think that's what this text says. It doesn't say that. It's not saying don't do something because so-and-so thinks it's wrong. Now, there may be some wisdom in, in, in how you treat and respect someone. That's not what this text is saying. It's saying, listen, don't live in a way that leads someone to actually sin against his or her conscience, therefore falling into a pattern of what could pretty much ruin them, destroy them. So we need to understand what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. He's saying here that we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak for their good. Not so that they can be justified in their beliefs, but so that they can be built up in Christ. And so if someone says they have a disagreement with you and you come in blazing and, 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 and full throttle to just mow them down with your convictions, that's not Christian. He's saying bear with them. Friend, are, listen, are you not thankful that people did that for you? Aren't you thankful that people were patient with you? That they loved you even when you had conflicting views on certain things? That you were not just constantly being bombarded by how wrong you are in everything that you think or believe? Again, we're talking about tertiary, non-essential matters to the gospel. There's a time to correct. There's a time to rebuke. There's a time to confront. Friends, we're talking about being patient with each other, with the purpose of seeing that other person being built up in Christ. Sometimes Christians hear this and they conclude that they somehow have to sacrifice their own convictions and cave to, to others or cater to others' views. That's not what Paul is saying. All he is saying is that your love for another brother or sister, or a weaker brother or sister, should far outweigh your insistence on your own positions. Your concern for other Christians should never be, first of all, convincing them why your way is right, but loving them and seeing that they are built up in the faith. Let me just simplify it this way. Your freedom in Christ is less important than another person's sanctification. Your freedom to do the things you think you can do according to the word of God in your own conscience, your freedom to live that way is less important than another person being built up in the faith. That's what Paul is saying. Called to love them to patiently bear with them. Questions for us to consider. Are you more prone to encourage and build others up or to debate them?
or just constantly throw darts at their shortcomings? What's your tendency? To encourage and build up, to love, to bear with, or to just constantly debate and point out why they are wrong? Are you willingly to temporarily lay aside some of your rights and freedoms for the good of others? Are you going to insist that because you're free to do this or that, that you're going to do it regardless of how it may encourage or discourage someone else? Friend, is your comfort more important than another person's growth? Andy Nacelli in the book Conscience, I know it's a book that we've referred to often, he said this, Christian freedom is not I always do what I want, nor is it I always do whatever the other person wants. It is I do whatever brings glory to God. I do what brings others under the influence of the gospel, and I do whatever leads to peace in the church. And friends, that is, that is what it means to practice true Christian freedom. God's glory and the good of others, the building up of others as we patiently endure and bear with them. Number two, another second reason. We're going to go faster, I promise. My first points are always the longest. You, you figure that? What happens is I want to say everything I want to say, and then I'm like, oh, I've got to shorten my time now. So really, the rest of the points just get, they're as long as the other ones most of the time. They just get shortened because some of you like checking out already. All right. Point number two, we got five to go, three more, four more to go. Second encouragement is that it imitates Christ. One is that it builds others up. reason why we should pursue Christian unity is it builds others up. Number two, it imitates Christ. We see it in verse three. He's continuing here. Build each other's up to building up, for Christ did not please himself. It's a Christ-like thing to do, to not seek your own freedoms first, but to seek the good of others. After all, that's exactly what Jesus did, wasn't it? Paul quotes from Psalm 69. There in verse 3, he says, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Psalm 69 is known as a messianic psalm. At least seven of its 36 verses are quoted in the New Testament. This psalm was, was often used to interpret and to explain the death of Jesus in the New Testament. So Paul picks up on it here as an example of how this one, Jesus, forsakes his own pleasures in order to advance the purposes and honor of God among others. We see that play out in the New Testament, the Gospels, don't we? Jesus was more committed to the plan and purpose of God, his Father, than his own rights and his own pleasures. We see that in Matthew chapter 26 most explicitly out of his own mouth as he's praying there in the garden. Where he says in verse 39 of chapter 26, Matthew, he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is the perfect example of someone bearing with and seeking the good of others, even at the expense of his own rights. In fact, you see that quite clearly in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, to the church there at Philippi, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Notice he's calling them to the same thing here, unity. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Romans 15. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, listen, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That is so needed, isn't it? Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And he goes on. How do we do this? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Complete my joy, be of the same mind. And here's our example. Jesus is much more than just an example. He actually accomplished our salvation. But he's pointing it out here that we're to love people in this similar way. If you were to look back at Psalm 69, the text that Paul quotes here in Romans 15, and specifically in verses 6 and 7, the psalm says that Jesus was consumed by zeal for God's house and that he suffered scorn for God's sake. This is the Messiah. Zeal for God's glory, listen, zeal for God's glory was the driving factor that enabled Jesus himself to lay aside all his rights as God and come in human flesh to be crucified on the cross for sinners. He cared more about the glory of God, the purposes of God in this world, than he did his own freedoms and his own rights. Now, compared to what Christ suffered for your salvation, simply foregoing a few non-essential freedoms from time to time shouldn't seem like that much of a deal, should it? Indeed, it's Christ-like to do that. But to insist on your freedoms over and above the good of others is not Christ-like. It is selfish. We see that it's, it imitates Christ when we live this way. But a third encouragement Paul gives us. Not only does it build others up, not only does it follow the example of Jesus, it is encouraged by the Scriptures. You look, look at verse 4. This verse may seem familiar to you because it's often kind of plucked out of context here and quoted as an affirmation of the sufficiency of Scripture, and it certainly is that. Notice after he quotes Psalm 69 in verse 3, he kind of just has a side note here about the Bible in general. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. We might have hope. Paul's point here is simple, that the Bible, the Scriptures, was written for two reasons. Number one, for our instruction, and number two, for our own hope. God's revelation to us is so that we can know the truth about Him, about ourselves, about the world in which we live, so that we can know God accurately. It instructs us. 
But, oh, brothers and sisters, the Bible is much more than an instruction manual. It's not just a textbook that impacts your intellect and your knowledge. It impacts your heart and the affections of who you are. It gives you hope. It's designed not merely to help us grow in knowledge, but it's designed to change us and to impact our affections and our hearts so that we have hope. Because of the promises we find in the Bible, we are able to cling to them in hope, to have confidence because of all that God has done. God has made some amazing promises, and not one of them has failed yet. Now, why did Paul bring this up here in a text that's urging unity? Why does he kind of go off here and to the side and just kind of refer to the Bible as, as being good for instruction and hope when he's, when he's commanding unity here? Well, he understood that the Old Testament scriptures were fulfilled in Christ. He understood that. And that doesn't mean that since Jesus has come, we just now throw away the Old Testament, just cut that part out of your Bible, and you just need the New Testament. No, the Old Testament is where we find the promises and prophecies of Christ's coming. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So reading the Old Testament instructs us about the gospel, but seeing them fulfilled in the New Testament then solidifies that hope in the gospel. So this hope is rooted in the fact, a recorded fact, that Jesus bore the reproach of God's enemies, laying the groundwork then for the promises of the future to be fully realized. So how does this inform Jewish and Gentile weak and strong unity? It encourages unity because the unity that we express now in the present is a foretaste of the future when all the promises of God will be fulfilled. So, by for, so as we push for unity now in the present we experience, in part, what is to come in the future. This is why Scripture is so important to our lives as Christians. It instructs and it gives hope, thereby motivating us towards the faithfulness that God has called us to here and now in the present. Reading the Bible is informative, but brothers and sisters, reading the Scriptures is also transformative. It instructs and it gives hope so that we live faithfully in the present as we anticipate the realization and the fulfillment of God's promises in the future. One application that I would tell you simply as a result of that is watch less news and read more Bible. You won't be nearly as depressed. Number four. It's supernaturally empowered. We know that it builds others up. It follows examples of Christ. It's encouraged by Scripture, and it's supernaturally empowered. Paul does two things in these verses. He commands and he prays. He's exhorting, and now he, he prays, doesn't he? Look at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. He prays for the very thing he's just commanded. Why does he do that? Well, he knows that this kind of unity that he's urging and exhorting these believers to, it's not a type of unity that they're going to be able to accomplish in their own strength. 
This is a supernatural unity. This is a unity that must come from the power of God, from the Holy Spirit that's within us. This is not something that we just get up and say, all right, Christians, get along. You may have some differences, but you just need to get over those differences. Just kind of muster up in your own heart. Find some strength with inside of you to, to just do the best you can and get along with each other. Be unified. Friends, we need the help of God to do that. And that is exactly why Jews and Gentiles, as divided and as different as they were, could be in the same church together. It's only because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what brought them together. That's what unified them. And Paul understood if they were going to maintain that unity, that they needed the help of God. So for the Jews and Gentiles, the weak and the strong, to exist together, it's going to require the power of God. That's what he says. May the Lord of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. It's a gift. It's an empowerment. It's an enablement. This kind of unity is not humanly cultivated. It is granted by God. Listen, as we think about these verses, Paul's primary concern is not that Christians agree on everything. You found that in, in this? His concern primarily, now it'd be great if we could, but his concern, his goal is not that we agree on everything. Now his concern, Romans 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11, is that we agree on the gospel, the very thing that saves us and unites us. But brothers and sisters, we're going to see things secondarily and tertiary matters. Sometimes we're not going to agree on things. I still can't figure out why you all pull for the Washington Redskins. I mean, as a Dallas Cowboy fan, it, it bugs me. But I love you in Christ. Jesus died for that sin, amen? See, his concern is not that we agree on everything. His concern is that Christians agree on the gospel and build their lives together around that. Friends, because we are all prone to wonder, prone to selfishness, prone to pride, Paul knows that we will need power from on high to stay faithful in pursuing this type of unity. Just the culture in which we live today, the, the tribalism and the, the, the anger, the hostility that exists is evidence of why we need this all the more today. We're going to be pulled in all kinds of directions over important issues, but they're not primary issues. And Christians oftentimes are at odds over all kinds of things. That they're important. But we have to stop and think for a minute, are they ultimate? And we need the power of God to overcome our positions and our pride to want to be right. Friends, we will disagree, but listen, how we disagree matters. And that's exactly what he's after here. It's not necessary that we agree on every issue, but it is absolutely necessary that as Christians we go out of our way to love each other and to respect each other and to bear with each other. And friends, we'll often find that difficult and uncomfortable and a long road to, to travel. But we know that we need the 
the grace of God and the power of God to do that. So when you grow weary and tired of all the division, all that's going on and the disagreements that we encounter, even among fellow brothers and sisters, our first response ought to be pray, not debate, not convince. There is a time and a place for those things. But our first posture, our first response ought to be, may the Lord, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another, that he may be praised. Brothers and sisters, don't give up on each other, but look to God who gives grace to live together despite our differences. And then number five, last but not least, number five, it glorifies God. It's in the text, verse six. Why would we do all of this? That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is why. This is why we're called to unity. We find ourselves at odds and in disagreements and we're wanting to, 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 to argue. God's glory is at stake at this point. Either we're going to seek to praise him in the midst of that or we're going to seek to, to, to try to lift up our own name and make a name for ourselves. Who, who, who are you living for? Make a name for yourself? Show how, people smart, how smart you are and how, how right you are in all your positions and the way you live your life. Look at my freedom. See, that's what Paul's trying to address here. We shouldn't be boasting and, 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 and just arrogantly steamrolling our way over other believers whom Christ died for. This is glory of God that we're after. Notice here the great end of our unity is that we worship, that, our, that we would have a unified worship as the goal, together with one voice. With one voice, the Jews and the Gentiles, the wine sippers and the teetotalers, singing in the same room, the vegans and carnivores, the one who Moses yard on Sunday and the one who refuses. The Democrat and the Republican. The homeschool mom and the public school teacher. On and on we could go. Together with one voice we glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the great end of our existence together is not to win others over to your side. Our great end is that God be glorified and praised. So no matter our differences, God must be worshipped. When we have our differences, we need to remember that the goal is not to prove our point. The goal is that God be praised. Division in the church over non-essential matters diverts precious time and opportunity from our greatest calling, and that is the advance of the gospel and the praise and worship of a great and awesome God. What the world needs to see is not churches that agree on everything, but people who come from all kinds of different backgrounds and thoughts that are unified in the true things that are essential in the gospel. That even in our differences, that we're able to come together and praise the same God who saved us with the same grace by the same Savior. Friend, are you pursuing the glory and worship of God and the good of others over your personal freedoms? Or are you guilty of elevating the non-essentials to maybe becoming things that are essential in your mind? Do you find yourself distancing yourself from those who exercise their Christian freedom differently than you? 
Are you moving toward them in love? Sure, let's have our robust conversations and discussions. But friends, let us move towards each other with a posture of empathy and listening. Let's not jump to conclusions and always assume the worst about someone just because they post something on Facebook. Let's patiently bear with them. Let's not look only to our own interest, but for the interest of others. And brothers and sisters, let's do these things with much grace and much patience, realizing that the chief end to which we all exist whether individually or collectively, is the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word and for this reminder, this exhortation, this calling that we have to love each other, to bear with each other. Specifically here that the strong have toward the weak. Father, I know that you would also tell the weak to love the strong. Father, there's much to be desired in these verses because oftentimes, Lord, we are not living this way. Oftentimes, Lord, we are impatient with each other. Oftentimes, Lord, we won't listen to each other. We're so convinced in our own positions that we just act more like a steamroller. Father, would you forgive us for when we have been impatient and arrogant and foolish? when we've been unloving and careless and apathetic toward our fellow, fellow brothers and sisters. Father, it's my prayer that the members of this church, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, would be known for the love that we have for each other, for the patience that we extend towards each other, even in our differences. Father, would you help us in this? Because, Lord, we know that we can't do this on our own. Father, as Paul prayed, we pray. We ask that you would grant this in our midst for the good of this fellowship and for the glory and honor of your name. Lord, we need your help. We need your grace. So, Father, would you do that work in our lives today for your glory and for the good of this fellowship and the glory of your name in this community and beyond. Lord, help us to love. Help us to bear with. And help us to seek unity, even in our differences. Help us to find that unity in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.